0: Uh, so welcome, we are at the first Sunday in Advent, we kind of had a bit of a, a, a kickstart into our Advent teaching series last week, and we're calling this Advent Together. So if you missed last week's teaching, really encourage you to go back and have a listen to that, because we kind of laid out Jesus' vision for community. And basically, the invitation for this whole Advent season is for us to do Advent differently. We, don't, we want to be able to do it together, but we want to be able to do it in a way in which we are slowing down enough to fully attend to the moment, this season of waiting, where we attend to the coming of Christ and anticipate His return. And it's a season that, in order for us to really attend to that and journey well through this season, rather than filling your calendar and adding more things, the encouragement last week was to kind of remove some things off your calendar. Who did that? Yeah, was that part of your homework last week? Anyone? Anyone actually follow through and do it? I see three hands. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's great. Um, (laughs) Well, we can work on that, we can work on that together. But the encouragement is to do it differently. and in, in order for us to be fully present to God in this season and present to one another, if we want to be able to do Advent together, it requires us to slow down, to remove some things, to create some space so that when we do show up, we show up much more intentionally and fully present. Well, today we, we pick up the themes of Advent and as we heard at the beginning of the worship time together, we lit the hope candle And the theme for the first Sunday of Advent is always the theme of hope. And so this morning, uh, this afternoon's message, that's a bad habit, isn't it? Uh, This afternoon's message is called A Community of Hope a community of hope, and I want to unpack for us a little bit what that actually means. If we we're to live into and lean into Jesus' vision for, of community, how do we become a people of hope together, a community of hope? And my, my, my main idea, my main point for us this afternoon, if you're taking notes, you want to jot this down now, uh, is, is that, uh, that I hope we'll see that that's only possible. A community of hope is only realized when we make a move from spectating to participating. When we make the move from spectating to participating. I'll unpack that more in a few moments. So, you know, I grew up in a family in Queensland and anyone who's ever been to Queensland, you know, especially this time of year, it gets really hot and really muggy and really humid. And so, we as a family, we always grew up in a place where, um, you know, we were always out on the water, in the water, you know, our family always had a boat. And you know everyone. Everyone, you know, I, I remember talking with other kids growing up, and they're like, "Oh, do you go fishing?" That was the first thing they asked. And I'm like, "No, no, no, fishing's so ungodly. We wouldn't do that. We're, we're followers of Jesus, right? Jesus called the disciples to leave their lives of fishing, and come follow Him, right? I mean, you know, instead, we wanted to be true followers of Jesus. So we were into water skiing. It's the closest we could get to walking on water, you see. So, um, so we got into water skiing at a young age, and we were all about this. And I can still remember when I was learning to ski. Any water skiers out there? You got some water skiers? Maybe wakeboarders will include you too. It's good days, good times. Um, anyways, we were into this. Uh, my, my parents were big into water skiing. They used to run camps where they would teach people to ski, and youth camps, and young adult camps, all this kind of stuff. And so I remember as a real young fellow, I think I was like six or seven, Um, when they said, right Clint, it's time for you to learn to ski. So I remember what it was like, you know, and, and, and they kind of walked me through all the motions. So it started at home in the backyard where they'd put the ski handle in my hands and they'd sit me down on the ground and they're like, see how you're kind of sitting in a chair, right? And you're kind of like in this position, you know, that's what the position you want to be in. So don't move, arms out straight, knees bent, you know, you know feet, uh, your bum back over the, over the back of your heels kind of thing. And when I pull this rope, you need to stay in that position until you get up into the standing position. You can kind of picture it, right? I'm not going to demonstrate for you, but if a volunteer would like to come up, we could try. No, no takers? Um, and so, so that's how it started. It started on the ground and so mum and dad would walk through the mechanics, arms straight, knees bent, keep your weight back, you know, that kind of thing. And then the day came where we get out in the water and as a six or seven year old, I, I can't remember how old I was, and my dad had this um, training handle that meant that you know it was, it was a little bit longer, a little bit longer of a handle and so he actually got in behind me and we're in the water together and dad would put his arms like through underneath my, underneath my uh, shoulders here and hold the handle and I would hold just outside of his hands and then I'd have my skis and he would have his skis just outside and he'd say, all right, go. And that's the moment where you're like, ooh, shivers, big gulp, you know, and, uh, and you get to go. But I can remember like long before that watching people out there skiing on the water and feeling like, just amazed. Like, man, that's incredible. And they're on the slalom ski and they're throwing a huge thing as they're making big turns and, you know, crossing the way. It was beautiful. It's just stunning to watch. And I just remember being absolutely awed by it. But I didn't get the same satisfaction until I actually got in the water and then got up and we got up and we got going. And as we got going and you're feeling a little bit wobbly there and, you know, you're kind of like doing this kind of thing. and then But after a while, you start to get the hang of it. And dad's behind me the whole time and he's like, now try and put your, see, let's put your weight onto your right foot. You know, put your weight onto your left foot. See how that helps you turn a little bit? And we kind of started turning a little bit. You started doing these things with me. And he's like, all right, seems like you're doing all right. And he let go and left me to it. And I continued to go. I didn't fall off. I went the whole rest of the way, circle around, come back to dad. Like it was like amazing, you know. It was one of those like absolute thrill moments for me, and it was incredible. The absolute uh, I- incredible, you know. Earlier, I remember watching how effortlessly these people were out skiing and like making it look just stunning and all that kind of stuff. But the the real moment for me was when I got off the beach. Stepped away from just watching and spectating, got into the water with my dad that actually I was like, man, doing this is way better than watching it. It's way better than watching it. See, watching them was inspiring, but stepping into the water and doing a bit of what they did was where inspiration transitioned into hope for me because I realized I could do this. Oh, I actually can live into this. And the same is true for us when it comes to community. In order to become a community of hope, we must move from spectating to participating. Spectating to participating. And this movement from spectating to participating, I think is the movement that um, I want to teach us through today because to do this, I want to start off looking at the writings of Luke, uh, looking at the teachings of Jesus in the writings of Luke and then, and then the enactment of that and how the, the local church, the early church, began to embody that and live that out in Acts. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 6. Now, we've just finished the Centered Sermon series, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This is from Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Uh, so not on the Mount, it's on the plain, it's on the flat. Let's start off with Luke chapter 6. Verses 27 through 38, Jesus says, but to you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if, if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For He is the, he is the King to those who, are, He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back." And so, here we have, in Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Plain, quite, quite a lot of uh, things in there, right? It's almost like Jesus is giving a a manifesto for what relational behavior within the kingdom of God is meant to look like, right? It's a teaching that redefines the current social interactions and the system of status and turns those relationships from being a commodity and existing in obligation to instead serving in service, loving in kinship, fellowship, family bonds, and a promise for those who practice the way Uh, of that redefinition, that they will belong to the new family of Jesus. This is what we talked about last week. Jesus' vision for community is that we be made into an alternative family, a new family. And, And it must be noted, like the audience listening would have found some of these ideas from Jesus absolutely insane. Like they would have been looking at this going, this is crazy, what are you talking about Jesus? I mean, amongst life within the Roman Empire, this Abandoning of hierarchy and removing of obligations and duties and all that kind of stuff would have been unthinkable to them. They would have been like like thinking, like, life actually can't work this way. What are you talking about, Jesus? You're crazy. And yet, Jesus issues this vision, one that's counter-cultural, and He tells of redefining practices. Remember, this is what it's like to belong to the new family of Jesus. We adopt new ways of behaving and relating one to another. Do this instead of that, He says. Give more of this when that happens. And then He describes the fruit that will come. He says, you will be this kind of a people. You will be the children of God. And in in this movement from one to the other, there is a growth to experience and a fruitful benefit to be received. I mean, think about it. Could it really be done? As we look back at Luke 6, I mean, would would that fruitful life really be possible? Would that kind of a community of hope even, is there any chance of that even being realized? Well, let's stay with Luke's writings, but flip over to Acts, Luke's second volume, if you will, and and move from the record of Jesus to the record of Jesus' body, the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, famous passage, maybe you've heard this one before, Verse 42 through 47, we get a glimpse, a picture of the early church, this early community of faith, the new family of Jesus and what it looks like. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer a deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day... The Lord added to their number, added to their fellowship, those who were being saved. And then, just a couple of chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, we see that all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt what, that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to to the apostles. Don't you love that they give like actual specific examples? This isn't just in theory, this was actually in practice, it was lived out. They, you know, when, when, when Luke was writing this, it was like, you could go and find Barnabas, you could go and actually check out, did this actually happen? You know, they could go and talk to the dude and find out. Here, it seems, Luke's giving two summary portraits of the early church. Then it's, well, it's not all the details, they do contain some of these important ones and, and in these early portraits, I think we see that the early believers had turned what Jesus planted in their imaginations. This vision of a new community had, had turned it into reality. They began to embody it and live it out and put it into practice. They lived out the manifesto that Jesus had issued in the Sermon on the Plain and they've taken on the practices in such a way that this fruitful benefit and health and growing began to grow amongst them and the early church were people who practiced life together in this counter-empire, kingdom, family, new family of Jesus. See, the way that the world worked hadn't really changed at all. All around these early disciples was still a culture of relationships that were viewed as a commodity right? Like like a, a, a transactional, if you will, a patron hierarchy or venerated status and then exchanges that required certain obligations where it was, I'll do this and you better give me that. And let's not trick ourselves into thinking that this doesn't still exist in relationships today, does it? Especially not in the church. We don't operate this way in the church, do we? Where we have... S- treat relationships as a bit of a commodity where it's a transaction, there's an expectation and, and if, you, if I do this, then you'll do that and if we do this, then you'll do that, right? I mean, this happens all the time but this new family of God was doing things in such a new way and they were writing a whole new way for relationships to work. I mean, this community was living out a commitment to mutuality and to generosity and, to, and, to, and, and of solidarity and need. You know, where they saw needs, they, they jumped into it. And in the melting pot of all these things, this highly diverse group of people committed to practicing life in the way of Jesus' teaching, they were experiencing the fruit. The growth, the health of kingdom family, what life was like in the family of God and they were representing how life could be in God's way. It wasn't just theory, it was real and lived in every dimension and in every detail of their lives, it was life in community that they had received from God and so they freely gave it to one another. They belonged with God like orphans welcomed into a new family, so They welcomed others too, right? And now there's all kinds of sermons and teaching and we could go on for days and days and days in these texts. But today I want to just keep this real simple and clear. There is one movement, I think, displayed here in these texts from Luke and it's that movement that we started with. It's a move from witnessing the teachings and the manifesto of Jesus to actually living it out in committed ways and the fruitfulness that comes from it it's the water ski moment all over again, right? It's a movement from spectating on the beach and watching others do it and being impressed to actually getting out and participating on the water. And so, I want to ask a couple of questions to see how we're doing with this today as we're kind of, um, as, as we're, as we're kind of unpacking it. And uh, these have been uncomfortable for me this week and I pray they may also be for you so that we can be in solidarity together, practice this new family of Jesus thing, right? Here we go. When, church, when have you needed help or provision of something that our church could provide? And did you ask for it? Have you confessed a sin to someone that you're accountable to in the last month? Does anyone else know a vulnerable hope you are currently praying for and joined you in praying for it? Have you started a new friendship at the well in the last six months, eating around a table, sharing some food and stories? Have you ignored, back-channeled or armoured up in defensiveness towards a person who hurt you? Or have you been able to deal openly and directly with them and forgive them? How are we doing, are we alright? I, I just got one more. <laughs> Oh! That's how I felt earlier, yeah, I still do. (laughs) Do you have intentional, named practices to go against the cultural stream of autonomy and individualism and do you live openly with others? See, those questions are not just some that show, these questions are some that show our growth and discipleship to Jesus and here's the kicker, here's the truth. None of those questions will matter if all you do is attend the life of Jesus from afar, from spectating, from being a face in the crowd. None of those will matter because a crowd doesn't demand nearly any of those things from you. It just doesn't. And if we're at the coalface of discipleship, if we want our lives to be increasingly formed into the image and likeness of Jesus, then that can only happen in relationship and in community. And these questions then become almost like metrics for us or measures by which we learn to grow in Jesus' way. They measure our relational health and they measure our love for others. These, after all, are what Jesus says are signs of maturity. And this, uh, you know, Luke talks about this all the way through, you know, Luke's gospel and then we see it again in Acts. But Dallas Willard puts it pretty simply in one line when he's talking about Christian community. He says, to experience the kingdom of God, a group of people should get together and simply try to do the things that Jesus instructed His disciples to do. Isn't that helpful? See, within the, within the larger arc of moving from spectator to participant in this, you know, we want to be getting together and actually doing the things of Jesus. That's what we want to be about, right? We don't want to just be kind of impressed from afar, but I don't know about you, I want to get in and do some of the Jesus stuff together, right? Let, let's actually get amongst, let's try some of these things together and we'll find ourselves, I think then, in a series of other movements of growth that take us from one way of being along to a whole nother way of being. They're like the mechanics of bend your knees, keep your arms straight, right, keep your, keep your weight back, you know, these kind of, you know, uh, different kind of mechanics and today I want to reflect on just a few of these movements, these mechanics that help us live into and become a community of hope and this, you know, in no particular order, there's, there's four movements that I think we need to attend to. The first is from being casual consumers to being committed contributors. The second is from surface strangers to friends in fellowship, from a passive spirituality to an active one, from someone in a row to someone in a circle or in a group. So, let's take these one at a time. See, we move from casual consumers to com- committed to contributors. This is, this is a movement where we decide to turn from our mode of being just a punter who shows up and comes along to things to actually respond uh, to the call to experience life truly in the new family of Jesus, the alternative family that He is building. And we come to realize that attending something on a Sunday just is not enough. It's not. Though it's important, it's beautiful, it's valued, it's it's just not enough because it's never, ever going to allow us to go deep enough. And here's a little bit on why that is. Because crowds have this sociological superpower, it's called anonymity, right? They do, right? A crowd can take a mass of individuals and absorb them into one individual mass, right? Where People can do crazy things that they normally wouldn't do in crowds just because of that anonymity. They suddenly discover and, 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 and allowing that individual to get swept up into actions that they normally wouldn't find themselves doing. But also, people can just hide in a crowd, can't they? And just be part of the mass. We can feel safe in the absorption that we experience and we can hide amongst the spectators and just be one of the crowd. And, and if we live at this level, all things just remain shallow and while a crowd, you know, may collectively shape a deep experience, they aren't going to find many deeper details of people's lives in the crowd experience. It's when we step away from the crowd and leave the anonymity and the absorption of the crowd in order to make space that we become a committed contributor in this new family of God. This space has to be smaller, it does, It'll have to be a place where we can't hide as easily. It'll have to be more vulnerable, but it's worth it because there we will experience what it is to go deeper in love with others. Which brings us to the second movement, that from surface strangers to friends in fellowship. Surface strangers to friends in fellowship. See, if that smaller space is made well, then we'll find ourselves, not, not like in the crowd, but we'll find ourselves experiencing true hospitality and generosity and care and, 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 and surface strangers maybe would know a face and a name, maybe what the other person does for a job and certainly what the weather's looking like for the next couple of days. But if we enter into a space regularly that allows us to be more fully known to each other, then we'll learn what that other person dreams about? What's the longing that's inside of them? What, what, what are they struggling with? How, how they might be thinking about voting, even, or the, uh, their opinions on how the country should be run? And we'll, we'll, we'll start seeing each other's hang-ups and we'll start, see, you know, being let into their painful times as well. We'll begin to experience strangers becoming friends. And in this space, we can begin to, uh, to try on for, the, for real, you know, try on for real, actually participating in these new relationships that Jesus' teaching points us towards. And it will take a while to journey into them more fully. At least we're in the space and we're on the way. Henry Nowen, in his book, Reaching Out, he explores the true way of Christian hospitality. And he says, for many of us, hospitality is to make a space for our friends to have a dinner party. But Christian hospitality is a committed space for strangers to become friends. It's more than just a dinner party. And when we engage properly with Christian hospitality, we'll go on this movement ourselves. Hospitality can become the gateway to learning how to be generous and sacrificial and how to care for others. The crowd is a mass that can't do this very well, but a small group can really nail it, right? You can. Being in a hospitable space with a few people where you eat around a table and you talk and you share and you listen and, 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 and you're listening to each other and, and, and later on the couch you, you, you share deeply and you pray for one another. Well, the natural byproduct of that kind of an engagement is going to be the knowing of another person deeply and the growth of friendship, right? Sometimes that kind of friendship happens naturally and that's awesome. We click with certain people and they click with us and Good! But other times, and actually most of the time, if we're honest, we'll find we have to do more work at it. Which brings us to this third movement, to point out. We move from passive spirituality to active spirituality. This Christian practice of fellowship, of community and life together, which is a practice of getting together in friendship, like I just talked about, is a trellis to grow our relationships upon, it's, it's, it's a committed choice and a regular rhythm and in it we switch from passively being swept along in the cultural norm to seeking transformation and renewal actively. And like on a side note, I'd, I'd like to clarify here, like when speaking of the disciplines of our faith, Dallas Willard says that grace isn't opposed to effort, grace is opposed to earning. These practices we commit to don't earn us anything further with God's love for us, right? But they, what they do is they make room for God to work in our hearts and work in our lives. So, we can't forget that, right? Our efforts are healthy when we see them as partnering with God for Him to do what we could not do on our own. I talked about this book last week, um, Practicing the Way of Jesus Together by Mark Scandretti, and he comments on the early church, um, as we've seen earlier in Acts today, saying, together they formed an environment, a community practice where whole life transformation was expected and supported. Man, don't you love the intentionality of those last few words? Transformation was expected and supported. How many of you would say that's true of your experience within the new family of Jesus? That transformation is expected and supported, friends. Those are active words. That's not passive spirituality, is it? That's active spirituality, and communi- community takes articulation of intent and preparing for it. It doesn't just happen. You know, we need to. We need to. It was like the moment of my dad getting in the water next to me, going through the steps, coaching me on what to do in order to get up and actually water ski and then then to get up and get going and learn the mechanics of prayer and teaching and discernment and dialogue and receiving from God. This all happens in the context of healthy community and then we learn those relational dynamics of what it means to live according to the Scriptures and forgiveness and honouring each other and holding our tongue sometimes. We find ourselves engaged in a life resembling that early church portrait from Acts. Choosing to practice fellowship, it'll take us from the crowd and it'll draw us out of our passive behaviors, engage us in deeper growth and training and we'll find ourselves in the thick of the action of life transformation in all areas. Which brings us to the final movement to reflect on and this is really, I guess, the big call or invitation of this talk a call that we, we've offered for many years around here at The Well is that we have to move from someone in a row to someone in a circle or in a group, someone who's connected with others. To experience the deeper things of discipleship, we've got to move from being just someone in the crowd to someone in a committed connection of relationships. And I don't want to be understood here because Like, honestly, I love big church gatherings. They're great. I love, we're a church that highly values our gathering on Sundays. It's important. But in our church architecture, the way in which we structure our church activities and priorities, we're deeply convinced that being together in gathered worship on a Sunday, it nails a certain set of activities and priorities, good things. But we're also absolutely convinced and clear that it doesn't do everything. That it has limitations, and we're very aware of those. There's a whole nother teaching series we could do on that, right? And so, as we've said over and over and over again, the best place for us to experience true, deep life transformation is with Jesus, is alongside others in the context. Of a small group or a life group or or whatever we, you know, you might call your LTG or, you know, wherever you do it, those midweek groups where we find ourselves sitting around living rooms and around tables rather than sitting in rows at a worship gathering, right? See, it's our groups that are the intentional space in our larger church architecture to experience community. Everything that we've just talked about, where those get embodied and lived out and practiced Trying it out, right? Where a group is a space where we move from being a casual consumer to a committed contributor. A group is that space where we move from being a surface stranger to finding friends in fellowship. A group is that space where we move from floating in passive spirituality to engaging in active spirituality. A group is a space to intentionally step out of the anonymity of the row. And I believe that this isn't just because it's a good idea, but because actually, over the years, some of the best stories of transformation in the life of our church have come from life groups, have come from the group life together, where, where people are experiencing it, stories of people really opening up and being seen and understood and feeling like they truly belong. Where stories of people find courage to give the way of Jesus a go, all anew and afresh. Where there's stories of of needs being met and generosity being practiced. There's stories of intergenerational mentoring and parenting. There's stories of tables becoming surrounded by new friends and laughter and celebrations. There's stories of working through disagreements of opinion and seeking forgiveness. There's stories of God moving in moments of prayer or a random midweek prophecy and encouragement. But my favorite thing, my favorite thing about life in groups like this, when we get together around tables and around living rooms, it's, it's where we watch as our crowd on the beach changes from just attending and feeling inspired to actually coming down in the water and joining the fun where we get to see people moving from spectator to participant for a church, you know, and this is what life's meant to be about. That's, that's what this is always meant to be about, to be a church seeking to see people who play their part in God's story and so they jump in to pray and jump in to meet needs and jump in to offer that word of knowledge or encouragement or jump in to minister, right, to play their part in God's story. This movement, this thing that we're part of, it requires all of us to participate in this new family that God is making for us. And so back to Luke, Acts, and I'm glad that the kids are just rejoining us now, uh, where we'd where we, you know, we'd started as this one command from one man, Jesus, was being built into something new, and a group of people began displaying God's love, like, like a new temple being built where God's Spirit was dwelling. Well, years later from that, after the wider spread of this way of life across the Mediterranean, the Apostle Paul would encourage the Ephesian church with these words. He said, in Christ, you are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. What a beautiful picture of what happens when the church is serious about the community work of intentionally building loving and meaningful relationships one with another. Christ, you too are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And so here's what we're going to do as we kind of wrap up and conclude our time in worship together. And this is going to be a little bit out of the comfort zone for some of you, It's okay, we're going to all be in it together. But I'm going to ask if we can have the house lights come up and I'm going to ask if everyone can actually stand up out of your seats and as best we can, let's make a giant circle around the room. So kids and everyone, let's make one big circle all the way around the room as best we can, Gather in a big circle around the room. Take a few moments just to move out, move around. Can we get the, the lights up a little bit more so people can see each other? All right, this is looking good, there's room, there's room around. All right, so as you kind of find space around the room, let's just take a moment to kind of be still and uh, look around, take take a moment to just kind of look around, look around at people, make some eye contact if you can with people around the room, because church, this is us, this is us, this is who we are. All this talk about doing life in community, of being built together as a dwelling where God's Spirit can dwell, this is you and I. This is us. These people that you're looking around at, these are the people that you are inviting into your life to encourage you and support you in the way to grow. These are the people that you're welcoming to speak those challenging words and hold you accountable at times. They're also the people who are welcoming you to do that in their lives. This is us, church. This is us. And this is the invitation because when we when we talk about being formed increasingly in community, this is the community. It's not some other abstract one. It's the person you're standing next to. It's the person you're standing across the room from, even if it's a long way from one side of the room to the other. These are the people. These are the people. And yes, it doesn't all happen in this one big gathering. It happens in smaller ones, where a subset of you gather in a circle in a living room and around a table during the week, and you get to open up and share openly with each other. You get to pray for each other, and encourage one another. This is, but this is us. And here's the truth. When we invite our family and our friends to come and consider Christ... When we invite our friends to church, we're not inviting them to a program or a service or a building. We're inviting them to us, to these people. Remember in the end of Acts 2, it said, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When the Lord adds to our community, this is who He's adding to. This is what He's doing. He's building His new family, His alternative family here and now in Ototahit. This is us and so I thought it'd be a perfect opportunity as we conclude our time of worship together to conclude with a moment of receiving communion. This is one of the things that unites the body of Christ across the generations and across the world geographically as well, is participating and and receiving from Christ's body and blood.